Product market fit is one of the most ubiquitous and foundational terms in the startup community today. It's a term that's inspired blog posts, books, curriculums, conferences, and even plot lines of TV shows. It's virtually impossible to talk about products today without hearing reference to product market fit. There are over 400,000 unique results on Google and over 5,000 videos on YouTube explaining the concept. It's why in episode 19, it's our honor to speak with the legendary executive and investor who coined the term, Andy Ratcliffe. Andy co-founded Benchmark Capital and led the single best performing early stage fund of all time. Benchmark has invested in an absolutely dynamite list of startups over the last 20 years, including household names such as eBay, Uber, Twitter, Snapchat, Dropbox, Instagram, WeWork, Yelp, Zendesk, and Zillow, amongst others. Over the past decade, Andy switched back to the operating side and founded Wealthfront. And today, Wealthfront is the leading automated investment service in the market with over $10 billion in assets under management. Andy, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Andy, I'm excited to talk to you today and dive into a bunch of topics related to startups and venture by really focusing the bulk of this conversation on your foundational work surrounding product market fit and disruptive innovation and applying it to your experience leading Wealthfront. As a starting place for our conversation, let's talk about the phrase product market fit, a term you coined and one that has truly become foundational in the startup community. You know, in preparing for our conversation, I became curious to put numbers behind just how widespread this phrase has become, and I was astounded. Over 400,000 unique results for the phrase on Google and 5,000-plus videos referencing and explaining product market fit on YouTube. You know, through its prevalence, the phrase has started to take on a meaning of its own, but I'd be most interested in hearing if you could give us your, your take on product market fit and why it matters. Well, the simplest way to explain it is when the dogs want to eat the dog food. it really is as simple as that that you know that you have succeeded when the or you know you're going to succeed when the dogs want to eat the dog food if the dogs want to eat the dog food you can screw everything else up in the company and you're going to be successful conversely you can dot all the i's and cross all the t's but if the dogs don't eat the dog food you're going to fail one of the most interesting and I think visceral nuances you used to describe product market fit is, you know, looking for desperation within potential customers. And I think that's really what, you know, what I, what I hear when I hear that dog food analogy. And it's to say that, you know, if you don't find desperation, it means there's likely a good enough alternative in the market and, and that will doom you, right? You've, you've also gone one step forward to say if customers aren't desperate for your product, Look for a new group that's desperate instead of iterating your product to find what those people want. Why focus on a new customer set instead of new product at, the, at this stage? Let me, let me frame this in terms used by Steve Blank and Eric Reese. So I think Steve really revolutionized the way one goes about building a startup with his four steps to the epiphany. And then Eric Reese made it more digestible in the lean startup. They're actually good friends. Eric was a disciple of Steve. So I almost think of Four Steps to the Epiphany as the Old Testament and the lean startup as the New Testament to uh, the customer development process. uh, Both of those guys, but basically what it is, is uh, the application of the scientific method to business. Amazingly, no one prior to Steve had ever thought to apply the scientific method that we learn in third grade to business, the idea of proposing hypotheses and then testing 
those hypotheses. So, so there are two critical. So, uh, Steve believes there are two critical hypotheses that you have to address in the early stages of a business. The first one is what he calls the value hypothesis. This is the what, the who, and the how. What are you going to build? For whom is it relevant? And what's the business model you're going to use to deliver? Only once you prove the value hypothesis should you move on to what's known as the growth hypothesis, which is how do you acquire customers cost effectively? The biggest mistake that people make, that entrepreneurs make, is that they spend a lot of money on customer acquisition before they know the customers really want their product. If you do that, if you have customers that don't really aren't desperate for your product, they're not going to stick, they're not going to tell their friends, and you therefore will have wasted your money. So it is really important to first nail your value hypothesis before you move on to your growth hypothesis. Companies waste most of their money on growth hypothesis. So the most misunderstood part of the value hypothesis, at least as it relates to technology companies, and they're the only ones that I'm really qualified to discuss, is that unlike what you might read about entrepreneurship, uh, the reality is really quite different. And by that I mean, the typical story that you hear about an entrepreneur is someone who looks at a market, tries to find a problem, and develops a solution. Those kind of opportunities lead to very small and mundane outcomes. In technology, it's actually the companies that go on to great success are actually the opposite. The entrepreneur recognizes an inflection point in technology that creates the opportunity to build a new kind of product. And then uh, they then have to find a market for that product. So you start with product and find market. You don't start with market and find product. If you believe that, then you shouldn't change your product because if you do, then what advantage do you have over anyone else? Uh, you no longer have a unique insight about an inflection point in technology. So the whole idea is if you have a, a unique insight about an inflection point in technology, then you have to figure out who cares. And that's why you pivot on market. You don't pivot on product. Yeah, and you, you, touched, you touched on this in the explanation you just gave. And I, you know, I want to give a little bit of context for you know, our listeners as well. You know, at Benchmark, you had, I think, actually, by return, probably the greatest performing early stage venture fund of all time. Um, and when evaluating companies, you know, every great venture firm ultimately looks for a dynamite con- combination of product, market, and team. Um, but typically err towards favoring one of the three criteria. And most, I would say, probably hold a strong bias actually towards a large market. Um, you, on the other hand, hold a strong favor towards product with, when thinking about potential impact, specifically professing exactly what you just said, which is you know most successful new markets are created through inflections in technology, enabling a new kind of product. Um, and I think that process, that thought process also ties closely to how disruptive innovation fundamentally works. And disruptive innovation, I pick on that phrase because I think it's one that has gained similar notoriety to product market fit, but has also been, um, you know, misinterpreted in in the in kind of the ambulance game of explaining the concept. So I'd love to pivot a little bit off of you know your idea of favoring product over market, and um, understanding from your perspective how does that concept tie 
to disruptive innovation, both new market disruptions and, and low-end disruptions? Well, first I have to take a little bit of exception with the earliest part of that long question, and that is in the venture business, the constant debate is about horse versus jockey. Is it the person, is it the entrepreneur, or is it the opportunity? So I don't think about it as product, market, or person. I think of it as horse versus jockey. Hmm, okay. And I think the choice is a function of the type of business that you're evaluating. So for companies that have high technical risk and low market risk, which was more the norm 20 years ago when hardware played a much greater role in the development of, of technology companies, it was all about the person, all about the uh, jockey. And today, where we've moved to a, a purely software world where there's very low technical risk and very high market risk, there's no question as to whether or not you can build a product. The question is whether or not anyone wants to use it. In that case, uh, the venture industry is very much focused, or the premier venture firms are very much focused on companies that have proven their value hypothesis before they fund. I think the big mistake among the uh, also rands in the venture industry is they want the growth hypothesis proved. Uh, what makes the really great venture firms so successful is they're willing to bet after the value hypothesis has been proven. In my venture practice, uh, I was very much focused on things that had high technical risk and low market risk. If you really could build what you say you could, then you knew people were going to buy because it was 10 times the performance or 10 times the bandwidth or 10 times the storage or one-tenth the latency. And so back then, I was very much focused on the person, not the product market fit. It's only today where you have low technical risk that I think you need to focus on that. I think that Unlike product market fit, the concept that disruption theory is worthy of a Nobel Prize. <laughs> if you have a truly disruptive business model, and it's the business model that's disruptive, not the technology, this is one of the biggest misunderstandings about it, then it's almost impossible for the incumbent to compete. And, and that's because a, a true disruption is simpler, cheaper, and more convenient than the alternatives, and uneconomic for the incumbent to address. Now, the only way that you can build or deliver a service that is uneconomic for the incumbent to address is through a business model advantage. Now, the business model advantage is often made possible by the technology. But it, it really is business model. So as you said, there are two types of disruptions. There's low-end disruptions and, and new market disruptions. So a new market disruption is a case where you serve a customer who previously couldn't be served. I think a great example of that would be, uh, would be eBay. You know, their uh, auctions uh, address people with you know, garage sales. Sotheby's was not going to start selling items for $2 through their system. It would have been horribly uneconomic for Sotheby's to do that. Well, uh, eBay took more, got better and better and better over time, and took away a lot of Sotheby's opportunity, actually, to the point that Sotheby's had to move higher and higher in. A low-end disruption is when you serve someone who is over-served, 
with something that's simpler, cheaper, and more convenient. So a, a great example of that is uh, Dell versus Compaq years ago. Compaq was the leading PC manufacturer, and they sold through retailers. And they, uh, Compaq had about a 40% gross margin, and then the retailer had about a 20% gross margin. When Michael Dell got started, uh, as is usually the case with disruptions, he did it by he disrupted by accident. He couldn't access retailers, so he sold computers out of his dorm room. He sold direct, and he sold at a gross margin of twenty five percent. So, in other words, he was selling to end users for a lower price than Compaq was selling to its retailers. Now, Compaq was a five billion dollar revenue business. And if they had tried to address what Dell was doing and sell direct to consumers at Dell's prices, they would have pissed off all of their retailers who would have left them for other manufacturers. And as a public company, that would have been disastrous for Compaq. So the thing about a disruption is it creates an innovator's dilemma for the incumbent. If you ignore the disruptor, they may ultimately kill you. But if you go after the disruptor, you kill yourself because of the poor economics. So when I think about disruption, and I relate it to what Steve Blank and Eric Reese uh, promote, that if a value hypothesis is the what, the who, and the how, the how is the business model. If you can apply a disruptive business model one that's almost impossible for the incumbent to address, then you're on to something really, really exciting. So let's let's talk about that last point of the business model specifically. And and you know, you've spoken about this before, but tying the disruptive business model to the fundamental idea of needing to be contrarian, right? You've talked about the idea quite a bit and how, you know, all startup ideas can be placed in a two by two matrix. You know, on the vertical axis you have correct and incorrect. And on the horizontal, you have contrarian and non-contrarian. And the sweet spot is really a contrarian and correct idea. Talk a little bit more about you know the four quadrants in, in that matrix and why the combination of contrarian and correct has the largest potential for value creation. Well, the idea actually comes from Howard Marks, who's my investment idol, the founder of Oak Tree. And, and he... Uh, is as well known for his quarterly letters to his investors as he is for his fantastic returns. And all of his letters are really based on that framework that you just described. You know, if you think about it, and I think the framework is equally applicable to uh, entrepreneurship as it is investing. If you're wrong, you clearly don't make money. What most people don't realize is if you're right in consensus, you don't make money because all of the returns get arbitraged away. And by the way, that's what most entrepreneurs seek to do. They try to do something that's a better version of what somebody else has done. It's really hard to build a big company that way. Uh, you know, starting with the market and trying to come up with a, a solution to a problem is a great example of writing consensus. Anybody can do it. Starting with a, an inflection point in technology to create a product and then finding a market to do that, that usually leads to non-consensus. You hope to be right, but you don't know that you're right when you get started. But it's the inflection point that allows you to serve a different customer that's non-consensus to what the incumbent is serving, and 
if it ends up working, it can work really big. So let's let's talk through a specific example of that, right? Let's let's tie together some of the ideas that we've talked about a little bit. That new markets are created through inflections in technology. You know, the most valuable companies are those that are drafted off of a contrarian and correct idea. I want to use some of those levers well, the to contrarian and correct are a result of the of, of the fair something of change. Yep, fair. So one is the result of the other. That's fair. That's fair. So let's let's take that let's take that kind of relational logic. And let's let's talk about let's spin it on a real world application and specifically sure. a company you founded close to a decade ago and are the CEO of Wealthfront. You know, Wealthfront today is one of the leading robo advisors on the market, over ten billion dollars now in assets under management. Um, and looking at the company as an outsider and as a user, frankly, it clearly espouses some of the key principles that we've discussed today. And it's fascinating to me personally as a user because you're playing in a part of the market that. Um, that incumbents and people with you know lesser net worths are essentially systematically blocked out of, and a large part of why I became a Wealthfront user was exa- was exactly that piece that the advisory services that I wanted I was blocked out of based on the business model constraints, um, you know, for the exactly. incumbents, right? Exactly. Yes. And fundamentally, the technology being created is interesting because it has the potential to graduate to service more complex needs. So one of the one of the best things about the product that I've started liking and using have been a lot of the rollouts around path, right? A lot of the rollouts around planning your home purchase, for example, planning college savings for, you know, kids that you might have in the future. More advanced services than just um, you know, let's link a bank account or let's just invest in um, you know, in wealth management for you. Um, and and I think tying a lot of those pieces together and establishing that foundation with users like myself allows it to be really the wealth management platform I foresee for you know the rest of my life. Additional products as I graduate up the stack will be there off of you know the wealth front core platform itself that would entice me as as a user. And so speak a bit more to the founding you know of Wealthfront, how the team has been able to turn it into you know, uh, a successful company at scale and what looks to be a promising future ahead and how Wealthfront really as a um, application of some of the principles that we've talked about, you know, continues forth in, in, in the market today. Okay, well, we followed the model that I described to you previously. We got started a while ago. Uh, we pivoted six years ago into what we're doing by changing market, not changing product. We might have changed the description of the product, but the software that underlined the product didn't really change much at all. But the market at which we aimed it changed quite significantly. Now, what we ended up doing wasn't possible before the availability of ETFs uh, as the way to invest in index funds and application programming interfaces from brokerage firms that enabled us to uh, open an account electronically, fund an account electronically, and trade account an account electronically. Before those, before APIs and ETFs were available, it just wasn't possible to build a wealth fund. If you had started two years prior, you would have failed. So we were really fortunate to see this inflection point, uh, and then we ultimately pivoted it into a, a market of young people with less than a million dollars to invest who wanted to delegate their finances. 
So what we aspire to do is build the equivalent of what you can get from a private wealth manager who might have a five to a $15 million account minimum, but automate all of their services and software and deliver it at minimums as low as $500 and at a fee of only a quarter of a percent, which is a quarter of the going rate that the private wealth managers charge, which is 1%. But none of that would have been possible had it not been for the inflection point in investment products and uh, in APIs. Now that allowed us to get started, and then over time, we've been able to take advantage of, of the availability of more and more data via application programming interfaces to not only build much, much more sophisticated investment products, but as you alluded to now, financial planning products. So instead of going to a financial planner and being asked a number of questions to which you don't know the exact answers about your finances uh, and waiting a couple of weeks before they run your guesses through their their software, uh, we now allow you to connect to your financial accounts, link to your financial accounts. We get all the data for you. Uh, we Our PhDs have added all sorts of assumptions that are relevant for your particular case. And so we can now offer a not only a retirement plan, but a lifestyle plan that is immediate, it's accurate, and most of all, it's easy. So for all those people who couldn't afford a financial advisor, uh, the only way they could get a financial plan was to use disparate calculators and a spreadsheet to tie them all together. And it was difficult because you had to find and enter all the information and make assumptions. Now through data access, we do all of that for you. And it just makes your life easier and better. And so talk about a little bit more about how you know, some of the principles we talked about led to, you know, the founding of the company itself. Talk a little bit more, you know, of course, of, of what's public, some of the decisions that Wealthfront, uh, you and the team have intentionally made in, in carrying this kind of line of thinking forward. So when, when I look from the outside, you know, some of the things I observe, for example, is um, a conscious decision, at least not yet, but what, you know, in following kind of your line of logic, what I would imagine, maybe not ever, a conscious decision not to move into worlds of you know humans as advisors as a part of the service, right? Staying true uh-huh. to software um, as as the core offering. There's another piece which is um, taking a more of a contrarian type approach of driving user growth. It seems like via hyper specific focus and and the Dropbox model as opposed to you know traditional marketing tactics such as you know TV ads like all the other traditional wealth uh, wealth management players. So talk, talk a little bit more about how, how in operating a company do you start to inflict some of these guiding principles, not just at the founding stage or at the philosophical stage, but really in the guts of operating a business, um, incorporating these thought processes as guiding principles on a day-in, day-out basis in decision-making. So the funny thing is I'm not trying to be contrarian. I'm basically... Uh, leading through principles that are tried and true of technology companies in Silicon Valley. I guess you would call us a fintech company. Most fintech companies are really heavy on the fin and really low on the tech. (laughs) We're the opposite. We're low on the fin and high on the tech. If you came to visit us, you'd never know we were a financial services company. 
So everything that we do is based on my decades of experience in the venture business in Silicon Valley. So, uh, you know, first and foremost, uh, just everyone in our world of automated investing is, as you said, starting at traditional advisors or planners to their software. Well, that serves an older clientele, but uh, we're so we're focused on young people who don't can't afford the money, the account minimums to delegate their accounts. We're riveted on our target audience. Well, our audience doesn't want to talk to people. As a matter of fact, our clients literally say, "We pay you not to talk to us." That is a very, very different customer than who everyone else is going after. Well, there was a famous bank robber named Willie Sutton, and he was asked, why do you rob banks? And he said, that's because that's where the money is. And I think that everybody is, is focused on baby boomers because they have all of the money. Well, one of the favorite lines of Silicon Valley is uh, Wayne Gretzky's answer as to what made him so great as a hockey player. When asked the question, he would always say, everyone else skates to where the puck is, I skate to where the puck is going to be. So where is the money today? It's with baby boomers. Where is it going to be? It's going to be with millennials. All of the growth is going to come from millennials. Silicon Valley companies have always made their money on the up-and-coming market, the growing part of the market, not taking share from the existing market. It's a new market disruption uh, that I described earlier. It's like eBay serving people with garage sales that Sotheby's wasn't serving. We're serving the people who couldn't afford access. Now, why don't we advertise? Why do we focus on word of mouth? Well, I'm such a huge advocate of product market fit that I found that, that you know you have product market fit when you have exponential organic growth. And I find that a lot of companies fool themselves into thinking they have product market fit because they're growing through paid channels, not realizing they're not growing organically. If you don't grow through word of mouth, you haven't found product market fit. So I want everyone in this company to be riveted on exponential organic growth. And any money we spend on advertising can distract us from that. I really like the way you put it of saying that you're actively not trying to be contrarian and you're using time-tested approaches that you've gained you know, via your experiences in Silicon Valley. One of my favorite quotes from you is um, the concept of, you know, you say how find, finding product market fit is, um, finding product market fit is serendipitous, but the process to get to serendipity is incredibly consistent. And I want to tie that a little bit to, you know, what Wealthfront was before Wealthfront, Kaching, a marketplace of investment managers. And I'm curious what uh, inflection point in technology um, that original idea was trying to take advantage of. And, and what was the iteration process the team really went through that led to finding product market fit with, with um, current state Wealthfront? Well, the two things that we tried to take advantage of when we first started. So what's consistent across the old uh, business and the new is our mission, which was to democratize access to sophisticated financial advice. First sophisticated investing, now sophisticated financial advice. And it was inspired by my experience as 
is the chairman of the University of Pennsylvania's uh, Endowment Investment Committee. The premier university endowments, I believe, are the best managed pools of capital in the world. And basically what I wanted to do was take what Penn and Harvard and Stanford do and do an 80-20 on them and deliver them through software to the masses so as to provide access to people who've never had access before. And I was motivated to do it because it was a social good. And when I retired from Benchmark, I really dedicated myself to focusing on on social goods. Well, uh, the enabler of, uh, we started out with a marketplace of investment managers, and it was enabled by the aforementioned APIs on brokerage firms. Now, the, uh, we were ident- trying to identify, manage, just like the uh, Ivy League endowments do, we were trying to identify managers who could outperform the market. And we actually did. So the people that that we identified using the same algorithm that all the premier endowments use, outperformed the market by 4% over the year and a net of fees over the year and a half we operated our marketplace. The problem was nobody cared. And in hindsight, the reason that nobody cared was that our service was only applicable to a portion of your portfolio. So we were offering up a marketplace of investment managers for what should be your U.S. stock allocation. And U.S. stocks should usually be on the order of a third of a portfolio. So what that meant was that we were, in effect, in effect, what we were asking our clients to do was give us a third of your money and then find other people to manage the other two-thirds. Well, that's pretty inconvenient. So after a year and a half of offering our service and offering these fantastic returns, and not really attracting much in the way of assets. After a year and a half, we'd only attracted $35 million of assets under management. We started to reach out to people who had started uh, to open an account but didn't complete it to ask why. And the consistent answer we got, although everybody used different words, but the answers were pretty consistent, uh, was I would rather... uh, have you managed my portfolio adequate, my entire portfolio adequately and inexpensively than a portion of it superbly? And we heard that message and thought, well, that's a lot easier to do than what we currently do. Uh, we were able to use 90% of the software that we developed instead of having a marketplace of managers whose trades we replicated into your account. We skinned it down to just one manager, us whose trades we replicated into your account. And that's how we were able to make the transition. And so taking some of these core principles that we've talked about and and having Wealthfront where it is today in the market, I'm curious to get your take on, you know, where do you see the future of financial services headed? And and really, how does Wealthfront continue to stay at the helm in a, in a world in which more and more companies are becoming sophisticated by educating themselves on lean startup methodology, disruptive innovation, et cetera? Well, the good news for us is almost everybody who enters FinTech enters it with a marketing focus, not a technology focus. So at at Wealthfront, 60% of our employees are engineers. You do not find that at any other FinTech company. They're primarily marketing companies where they have a bunch of squirrels in the back office that are doing all the work. Uh, If we can't automate something, we don't do it. The 
because you can't scale a business if you have people. People, you just people really make running a company much more difficult. You want to try to automate everything you possibly can. So, a, I'm not worried about other people entering the space because they just don't seem to have the right mentality. And b, if they copy us, that's wonderful. You can't win by following. It's like sailing; you have to tack. I think that we have a pretty good idea about additional services that we need to build to further delight our our clients, and if we can do a good job of that, then we'll do just fine. Well, Andy, this has been you know a fascinating conversation, and with that, I want to ask you know one final question on the personal side to close us out. You know, you've obviously had an immensely successful career by any objective standard, but. I think what's more inspiring is how passionate and interested you are in, in what you're doing. And you can clearly hear that, you know, when you talk. From all the career lessons and reflections you've had over the course of your career, if you were sitting in my shoes again and, and you know, really many of our listeners' shoes again, relatively fresh out of grad school, maybe in a first, you know, couple jobs or so, starting your career, what advice would you have given yourself? Well, the advice that I give, I didn't follow. But I'll tell you the advice that I give to my students I teach at Stanford Graduate School of Business. I'll have for the last 13 years. So I'll tell you what I tell them. Number one, you learn more uh, from success than you do from failure professionally. I think you learn more personally from failure, but you learn more professionally from success. If you think about it, do I hire you for what you know not to do or for what you know to do? Well, you know, if I'm going to run a fast, if I hope to build a fast-growing company, then I want to hire people who learn the lessons of fast growth because there are certain lessons that you learn from having worked in a fast-growing business that you can't learn by reading about it. So there's nothing more important than success. That's what I look to hire from. So I advise my students to not join startups out of school, but rather to join mid-sized companies with a lot of momentum to get that halo effect of success and to learn the lessons of success. And then they can parlay that into a smaller company later. Small companies don't really value the experience that you get at a big company because a lot of the skills are not transferable. If you work at a Google or a Facebook, in effect, you're leveraging a monopoly. Well, those skills are not transferable to a raw startup, but the skills that you might develop in a mid-sized company, a company with 20 to 300 million in revenue, might be, uh, are likely to be transferable. I, I actually documented all of this advice in a series of blog posts that we turned into an ebook at Wealthfront that you can download, and it's called the Silicon Valley Career Guide. So if anyone wants to understand more details behind this advice, it's a free ebook that they're welcome to download. Andy, thanks so much. This has been really an incredibly insightful and, and just really fun conversation and, and really appreciate your time and, and the opportunity to talk through your experiences today. Well, thank you for having me on.